Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Whitney Tilson. Whitney, how are you doing? I'm awesome. How about yourself? I'm very good and glad to have you over here. And I'm going to read your bio for people who don't know and then share how we met. So Whitney Tilson has always prioritized avoiding calamities in both. This is, by the way, from his memoir, would you say, or book of advice? Yeah, life advice from, aimed at my three daughters is originally the way I intended it. And as I said in the intro to my book, I said, if it has even a tiny impact on their lives, it was worth the effort to write the book. And I decided to self-publish the book and maybe it can help some other people as well. And th so that's the context for the bio. So Whitney Tilson has always prioritized avoiding calamities in both his personal life and his career. He graduated with high honors from both Harvard College and Harvard Business School, had a successful career building multiple for-profit and non-profit businesses, is happily married after 27 years, has three wonderful daughters, despite riding his bike in the streets of Manhattan every day. And by the way, he rode down here and it's snowing outside. And being an accomplished obstacle course racer and mountain climber, he's never had a serious accident. Whitney is passionate about sharing what he's learned with others through this book, as well as the many newsletters he publishes at his firm, Esquire Financial Research. Empire. I'm sorry. Thank you. Empire. And uh, I'm going to say how we met. I don't know exactly how we met because years and years ago, I learned of you. I was doing stuff with Wendy Kopp and Teach for America. And the co-founder of my first business was a Teach for America guy. And you had Democrats for Educational Reform and a newsletter. And you had a big presentation parallel to or something like Al Gore's presentation on from this inconvenient truth. And I joined that mailing list thinking maybe that was close to your bigger mailing list, but, but not even close. Yeah, that was uh, the Al Gore. When I went and saw an inconvenient truth, I was deep in the weeds on education reform. And I thought it was a very powerful way that he was trying to sort of spread his views on the importance of the, the crisis of climate change, etc. And so I spent at least a year, maybe two years, pulling together a similar presentation, making the case for the urgent need to reform our public education system and put together what ended up being a 250-slide presentation. And it ended up being made into a documentary. So it was nothing as you know nationally known as what Al Gore ended up doing, but it was my little attempt at doing something like that. And it got some traction. Obviously, you saw it and joined my email list. So that's education reform has been one of my big philanthropic areas for 30 years now, ever since it was Wendy Kopp, in fact, who got me involved. She was graduating from Princeton the same year I was graduating from Harvard, and her brother was a year behind me at Harvard, knew of my interest in education and that kind of thing, put us in touch. And so I came down, I was employee number two at TFA in 1989, just before there were any core members in the very earliest days. Yeah, you in the, the book, you said you didn't mess it up too much, I think. <laughs> Yeah. When I look back, Wendy was just a force of nature, still is, but she was so mature beyond her years. Um, she had been running a large organization called the Foundation for Student Communication at Princeton, which was a large student-run organization, which hosted large conferences where they would bring student leaders from colleges around the country and then they would bring CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who were interested in maybe recruiting for their companies, but also just hearing from and connecting with the next generation of leadership in America. So it turns out I was one of 10 students at Harvard that had been nominated, unbeknownst to me, 
by the dean of students uh, at Harvard at the time, back in the late 80s. And so I had gone to one of these conferences, and it was a big operation, probably 200 or 250 students or more from all over the country at a big hotel in Philadelphia. Dozens of CEOs were there. And she was an undergraduate who had been, who had come up through the ranks and had become president of the student run organization that was organizing this major event. I don't know whether they did it more than once a year. I, I only attended one of them. But in many ways, Wendy was perfectly positioned to pull off Teach for America because of this experience. She had a Rolodex of CEOs who she could go raise money from. She had connections at colleges and universities all over the country for our recruiting efforts. We were trying to attract the same kind of students to Teach for America, the college graduates, that had been attending these conferences, right? So, And she had just gotten just a lot of organizational and entrepreneurial experience. And I had some of that, but looking back, on a scale of 1 to 10, Wendy was a 9.9 and I was like a 3.9 or something in terms of just having the skill set to pull off the launch of a major national nonprofit organization that in year one was going to recruit and did recruit 500 top college graduates from around the country, place them in a dozen cities, train them over the summer. Wendy insisted from the beginning on starting at a large scale. It was one of the most ambitious, boldest moves in business or social enterprise that I've ever seen. Um, because most things start off with a tiny little pilot program with five teachers at one school in one city. And one who's like, no, we're doing 500 from year one. So I was only there for six months. I had deferred a job at the Boston Consulting Group. I always knew I wanted to go to Harvard Business School from early in my undergrad days. I was very interested in entrepreneurship. Interestingly, no, given what I've done with my career, zero interest in investing. I'd never owned a stock in my life. We can talk about that later. But I, I knew I was interested in business. So I deferred my job at BCG, came down to New York, and lived on a tiny little salary. And all of us were working long hours. There were a team of six of us initially starting Teach for America. And uh, But eventually, it became clear that I was trying to have my cake and eat it too, which is we had no idea whether Teach for America was going to work, etc. So I was the only one who had a job waiting for me. And so Wendy couldn't assign me any areas of responsibility because I was going to be walking out the door at some near point in the future, whereas everyone else was there for the long run. And when that became clear, and when my sort of lack of experience, frankly, became clear to her and to me, we parted as friends and I went back to Boston and did my two years at BCG, ended up at Harvard Business School and got married and all of that. But those six months had a big influence on my life to this day. It certainly got me engaged in the whole area of school reform where I've spent a lot of time, been super involved for three decades now. So you had this big passion that hasn't left you. And the level of passion here, very high. You engage people on it and bring people together on it. Then there are these other areas of passion as well. Because when I first met, I've always thought of you as a hedge fund guy. But that's actually in your career is not that, is, is one part of it. And you said in the book that when you started, you had no strategy. You had, and you said you tripled the money in a couple of years. But then the number actually went from, 
it went it looked like a 200 times increase well there's a difference between you know your IRR your investment rate of return and how I did for my initial investors which is in the first dozen years I wish it was the first couple of years but it was the first dozen years I beat the market I think 11 of my first 12 years and ended up tripling my investors money from my launch in 1999 through the global financial crisis and the recovery. So call it 99 through 2010. And that was a period of time when the stock market was flat. If you look over that 12-year period, even with dividends reinvested, the S&P 500 was exactly flat, and I was up 200% on behalf of my investors. Now, as a result of those very good returns, a lot more people gave me money to invest. And so my little $1 million of assets under management grew to over $200 million at its peak. And then I actually have a new book that I'm 90% finished with. The book you were referring to about sort of my life advice to my daughters is called The Art of Playing Defense. And it's sort of a life lessons book. There are only two or three pages about financial, avoiding financial calamities in that book. But I've written another book that I'll probably publish at some point this year called The Rise and Fall of Case Capital, which is the both the investing but also entrepreneurial story of my 18 years of starting a hedge fund out of my bedroom with a million dollars under management at the beginning of 1999 and becoming enormously successful, not billionaire private jet successful, but by any reasonable standard, a great deal of investment success, but also business success. I was on 60 Minutes twice. I was a regular uh, on CNBC. So I was on national television every week for a couple years and became one of the, I'd say, 20 best known investors in the world at my peak. And I nailed the internet bubble. I nailed the housing bubble, made some big calls. CNBC even nicknamed me the prophet because I had so accurately predicted exactly what was going to happen with the housing market and the collapse of the stock market during the global financial crisis. So that was the first 12 years. And then the next seven years, basically, I proceeded to screw it all up. I didn't blow up. I didn't. Yeah. That's the fall. The rise and fall of Case Capital is how did I build such a great business and achieve such tremendous success and then managed to make a series of both business and investing mistakes that caused me to underperform the market after beating, crushing the market for a dozen years. I then underperformed the market substantially in a bull market in which stocks, by the way, over the first 12 years, stocks were flat. When I say stocks, I mean the U.S. stock market. The S&P 500 was flat. Over the next seven or eight years, the U.S. stock market doubled coming out of the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis, and my fund was barely up. So I went from a flat market and that I was beating by a wide margin it reversed. My investors got frustrated after they were accustomed to me delivering them great returns every year. And that turned around. And I couldn't figure out how to turn performance around. And so my assets went from a couple hundred million down to about 50 million. And it was no longer a great business. And it was sort of like drip torture. There wasn't any one sudden thing. There wasn't one thing. It was a series of uh, mistakes that I made. And eventually, I ended up closing the business, returning capital to my investors, and had the opportunity to get into the investment newsletter business, Empire Financial Research, which is what I've been doing the last three years. And 
it's perfect. Couldn't be happier. Have a great quality of life. Don't have the stress of actually managing other people's money where we give investment advice. We recommend stocks, but people manage their own money. And it's turned out that I am a much better investment newsletter CEO than I am hedge fund founder and manager. So so it, at age 55, I've uh, finally found, I think, my calling, which I hope to do for the rest of my life. So the new, I want to get to that newsletter. And although also there's one other thing in the past couple of years is when the pandemic hit, you took a huge, I think you're the only newsletter that, or not newsletter, it's just an email blast that it's, you really went into it. But and the newsletter is also talking about how you helped build the stuff in Central Park to, what do you call it? The Samaritan's Purse uh, tent hospital that was operating in Central Park happened to be directly across the street from my apartment building. And so I went over and volunteered there, and that turned into three months of 12 hours a day, basically, over there doing a million different things to try and help all these people who had come in from all over the country to help sick New Yorkers and provide excess overflow capacity at a time when a lot of people were getting sick and dying in New York. So I figured the least I could do is try and deliver their mail because there was no mailing address. So people had anything their families wanted to ship to them, they sent to my building. I would go over and deliver their mail every day. They had, it was March in New York and the grass was wet and muddy so I went over and hauled mulch and put out pathways and then got everybody who needed it boots rather than so they wouldn't be walking around in wet sneakers. Yeah, so it was a million little things. I would go on Costco runs twice a week and I would drop, I don't know, 1500 bucks or a couple thousand dollars at Costco every visit and I would fill up my car with every beverage and snack and whatever. So the nurses and doctors and the, would have lots of snacks and food to keep them happy and their stomachs full. And the moral support. Yeah. I mean, you weren't just bang pop. Yeah, it was, I felt like it was a feeling as this um, pandemic hit New York worse than pretty much anywhere in the world. And thousands of New Yorkers were dying. And I was in a comfortable apartment, able to work from home. The pandemic actually was a tailwind for my business because people were sitting at home buying newsletters, buying my newsletters and, and investing in the stock market and all the volatility in the stock market was good for my business. So fortunately, my immediate and extended family, nobody got sick or was hospitalized, much less died. My business was doing well. And I was living in a comfortable apartment and was able to go out jogging in Central Park and whatever. So I felt, but I felt very powerless knowing what was happening and all the suffering and death happening right near my neighborhood and in my neighborhood, but all over the world. So I felt like was the least I could do is help this hospital of good people who had come to try and alleviate some of that uh, suffering and death in New York. And on top of that, there was also the newsletters had a tremendous amount of research and publicizing useful information, talking about who the whom to listen to and find out things more, which I read is this is a guy who's into finance and research and he's applying it in a new area because there's lots of numbers, lots of trends to be discovered. Is it, Did I read you right that you also wanted to help the world. Yeah. Well, I, it's funny. I uh, have sort of an obsessive personality. And when I dive into things that I'm interested in, I tend to go all in, in a very deep way. So when the pandemic hit, I was determined to learn everything I could about it. 
partly because it had a very big impact on the stock market. And I was trying to give my 100,000 plus subscribers good investment advice. And if, in fact, the world was going to be shut down for a year and there would be millions of deaths in the United States and all, well, the stock market wouldn't have dropped 35%. It would have dropped 75%, right? So it was, I initially tried to understand how the pandemic might play out in order to give good investment advice to my subscribers. But it's long since moved past that where I just felt uh, I was just, it was intellectually fascinating to learn about this new virus, to see what was happening in other parts of the world so that we might be able to see what would happen here in the United States, what would happen here in New York City. And so I built a separate email list. And I've probably got 20 email lists at this point on all the different areas that I've gone diving into over time. Sometimes it's particular companies. I have a Tesla email list. Sometimes it's topics. Adventure sports and fitness is one. Politics is another. Jokes is another. Africa is another. Criminal justice reform is another. Education reform. So in this case, I started writing, I'd say every other day, I was writing pretty in-depth emails about the new developments, research, what was happening with the pandemic in the US and also all around the world. And I've uh, continued to do that to this day. And I will, I have to admit that I initially got it completely wrong. I thought the pandemic would be more like past pandemics that we've had, like SARS or MERS or the Ebola, whatever, which turned out to get a lot of news and were in the headlines, but only for a week or two. And then we got a handle on them and they fizzled out. And so the initial emails that I sent around were absolutely dead wrong. So to some extent, I've been trying to make up for giving terrible advice out of the box by giving better advice uh, since then. This enthusiasm, it's infectious. I presume people at home are listening to this are like, this guy really gets into stuff and I could get into it too. And I want to, can you share what are the top five or six, what's the first, or is there one that's like your main newsletter? Is newsletter the right term? And yeah. what are the top five or six by number? Yeah, I would call them email blasts. But at Empire Financial Research, there's something that goes out five days a week, every day that the market is open. It's called Whitney Tilson's Daily. And it goes out to 138 or 139,000 people. And that's something, that's the main responsibility I have at my business, which consists of my daily email is free. We have two free dailies, one called Empire Financial Daily that two of my colleagues write, and I write Whitney Tilson's Daily. So those go out to 100, almost 140,000, and the other one goes out to about 200,000 people for free every day, uh, every weekday. And then we have eight paid newsletters ranging from $49 a year for our flagship Empire Stock Investor newsletter, which sort of focuses on retirement stocks for the kinds of things that we would put in my parents' retirement account, those kind of stocks, right? Ranging up to $2,500 a year or more for our more specialized newsletters on crypto, SPACs, growth stocks, Retail slash consumer stocks, small cap stocks, the kinds of things that I used to invest in in my hedge fund. So we have a wide range of newsletters for different types of people and different who are adopting different styles of investing. So that's the business side. And so that's the primary newsletter that goes out on a regular schedule and it's formatted professionally and et cetera. 
And then just personally, I've created a whole range of email lists over time. The lar- single largest is the one how we met, which is you somehow got on my ed reform email list, focusing on charter schools and efforts to reform and improve public schools in, in America. I would say that probably has six or 7,000 people on it. A roughly similar number are on my coronavirus email list. And all of these are free emails that come out from my personal email account. Whereas the investing one goes out through a professional distribution service where I write the content, but then there's a team of people who proofread it and lay it out and send it out all professionally. All the other email blasts um, are just sent out of my personal email address and anyone who replies just comes back into my email box. I should check this. So some listeners are thinking, I want to get on some of these lists. So how do they get on the list? Well, it's sort of hard. Anyone can get on my investing email list. Just go to empirefinancialresearch.com and there's a box right there to you just type in your email address and you'll be added. And I'll put the link in the notes. That's easy enough. Everyone else, you just have to email me personally and it's all just word of mouth. Like I'm not running it as a business. I just do it for friends and it just over the years, it just tends to expand by word of mouth. So my, if you just Google Whitney Tilson, I have about six different emails. They all work. They all come to me. So I'm very easy to contact, which is usually a good thing. Every once in a while, I get some trolls and have to block some emails. So wtilson at tilsonfunds.com is probably the most common email out there. But it's uh, it, you, you asked what are the largest email distribution lists I have after my investing one. All of the others are quite a bit smaller, but still many thousands of people. So I have a Tesla email list, a stock that I was short at one time, foolishly have never been long. But I think Elon Musk is one of the most fascinating business leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators in history. And even though his behavior sometimes is disgusting and despicable, what he has built, not just at Tesla, but at SpaceX, boggles my mind. And he's endlessly fascinating. And I think Tesla, the company is endlessly fascinating. So I created a Tesla email list. I think I added you to my adventure sports and fitness email list since we share that in common, which is just articles about health and fitness. And anytime I'm going to run a Tough Mudder race or do a half marathon trail run up in the gunks or something like that. I'll just send out an email to 500 people on that list. And congratulations for your recent personal bests on your run. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I went up to the, there's a running group that we jokingly call Whitney and the ladies because I'm the only man in the group. It's a nine to 10 a.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays with a running coach and it's me and there's probably a group of a half dozen women in their 40s and 50s. I'm 55. And uh, some uh, are very good runners and some are quite slow, but everybody's just out there enjoying Central Park and getting some, um, getting a good workout. And so we went up to the Armory track, which is one of these nice rubberized tracks with bank curves and all. And we ran uh, five distances, 1,000 meters, 800, 600, 400, and 200. And one of the ways the coach motivates us is he keeps track of our fastest times at all these different distances. So I'm, of course, being a competitive person. And he's told me, Whitney, you can set some personal bests on this track. This is the track to do it on because it has the spongy surface and all. And so sure enough, on three of the five distances, I set my personal best. But any runner, any serious runners would laugh at my times, but I'm a 55-year-old amateur, and so I was pretty pleased to be setting personal bests at the age of 55. 
So I do, I'm proud, I am a much better tennis player than runner. I'm a much better rock climber and mountain climber, a much better obstacle course racer. Those are things where in my age group, I compete pretty well on a national level. Again, in my age group, I find that the competition tends to dwindle as I hit, when I hit 50 and then when I hit 55. So, but I have, I took a series of tests when I was probably in my late 20s. And the one area where I tested off the charts, like of 35,000 people they'd ever tested, I was the highest in terms of need for new stimulation was the, so, you know, my wife, she gets up every morning at the same time. She goes to the gym to the minute at the exact same time. She is on the elliptical for exactly 40 minutes. Then she does her planks and a couple push-ups. right? She is a creature of habit. Me, I wake up and it's like, oh, I got my running group today. I go work out with my trainer. I got some tennis tonight. I play basketball at lunch at the 92nd Street Y. And ah, this weekend, maybe I'll sign up for that race here, or this half marathon there or something, right? And then I schedule some climbing trips with my climbing guide. I was down in Ecuador climbing in, in the first week of December, climbing two 20,000-foot peaks in Ecuador. And also, I try and mix in some good trips and bucket list stuff like rim to rim to rim on the Grand Canyon, that kind of thing. All of it to have adventures, have fun, but also I find it, it keeps me motivated to stay in shape on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis if I've got some big thing coming up, some 24-hour race coming up. And every November, I run the World's Toughest Mudder, which is a 24-hour Tough Mudder race with obstacles and all. And I've won the 50 and older twice as running it as an individual. And last November ran it as a team on, on a relay basis for the first time. And we finished second overall. So we're pretty pleased. But to run a 24-hour race, the, there's an element of fear that kicks in about six months ahead of time where I know I have to train like a maniac or I'm just going to I'm not going to be able to walk for a month after that race if I'm not properly trained. So long story short, I've got a lot of different interests, both in sports adventures, but I'm very politically active and involved. And interestingly, my ed reform involvement has now shifted more toward criminal justice reform, which here in New York, with the recent murder of the two police officers, attempts to close Rikers, and it's become a a big issue nationally, but especially here in New York, especially in the last month or so. And uh, so I'm up to my eyeballs on that issue these days. And that came up when we met first in person. We met in Washington Square Park, and you're also very adept and skilled and experienced in picking up litter. Which makes you one of the few people like that. Did I tell you about Alexis Stewart? No. Uh, so I was walking down by the river picking up litter, and I see this woman picking up litter, and uh, and she's not just picking it up; she's like methodically picking it up. And I was like, I can tell this person picks up litter. So I go up and start talking to her, and I don't want to go up and say thank you because when people say that to me, it sounds very empty. And what I, no one's come up to me and said, you know what, I'm going to do that too. That's what I really want to hear. So I walk up to this woman and I say. I want you to know I live around here. We're neighbors, I guess. And I pick up litter too every day. I picked up litter every day for years. And we start talking about it. She, this woman picks up litter every day. And she's like alluding to knowing important people. And her, so it's Alexis Stewart, Martha's daughter. Ah, okay. And I didn't know who that was. Turns out she lives not far from here. And so we talked for a bunch talking about picking up litter. Like 
the details that not like she will pick up. She Does she go out for the purpose of picking up yes. litter? She's just out because I don't go out to pick up litter. I go out to walk my dogs. Oh, but yeah. when I see litter, it drives me crazy, and especially in my neighborhood and in my corner of Central Park. And so she was walking her dog that time, and I take it she, it's when she's walking her dog. But she's much more methodical. When I go and I pick up what's in my path, I don't go out of my way. A little bit I'll go out of my way. And she will pick up everything in a certain area. And she wears gloves, I don't wear gloves. So she'll pick up, if I see a water bottle with yellow liquid in it, I'm like, that's not, I'm not touching that. But yeah. she will because she's not touching it. She's wearing the gloves. Yeah. And which came up in our podcast. And, um, she had a whole bunch of other stuff now, too. Now, does she clean up dog poop? That's how it started with me because I'm out there walking my dog. So I've got the dog bags with me. And that's, of course, it's the most disgusting thing to pick up, of course. But it's also the most disgusting thing if you don't pick it up. Someone's going to step in it. Or Although it has hit me that if there's plastic on the ground or dog poop on the ground, the dog poop is actually cleaner. Oh, really? Well, in the sense of it's not going to be your 500 years from now. Leaching right. Leaching okay. into the environment. So I'd much rather have more dog poop than more plastic. I'd rather have people clean up both. Spoken like a true environmentalist. <laughs> well, and also, I don't have a dog, so I don't feel compelled to pick up other people's litter. I will sometimes pick up the bags. Yes. That's what I don't understand. You see, I can understand. Like, I'm sure there have been times when my dogs, when I was talking with somebody, and my dogs went off and left the poop, and I didn't notice it, right? So sometimes... But they put it in the bag and they leave the bag on the Yes. Yeah, like that I don't understand. Like if you're going to be conscientious enough to follow the law and common human decency to pick up your dog's poop, put it in a bag, wrap it up, but then not put the plastic bag in a trash can. Like I don't get that. Who does that? I also have in my closet over there, one of my podcast guests, Lorna Davis, we, she's got this dog that she really loves. And when I see – there's a lot of empty – Dog poop bags. Like sometimes I find whole rolls. So I pick them up and save them for her. Right, right. Well, it's funny. My wife and I were joking last week that three days in a row, as we were walking into Central Park, there was just a perfectly new, cost one penny, dog poop bag. So it's a piece of trash, but it's a piece of trash I actually used. And then the next day, the fourth day that we went out, both of us forgot the poop bags and our dogs are going poop. And she's having me run back into our apartment building to grab the poop bags that we forgot. And I was saying to her, how come the trash, the litterers couldn't have left us the poop bag the one day we actually needed it? <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting the people who pick up litter. And in the park, there's people who are there all the time and they tend to leave garbage. Certainly the drug dealers, the weed dealers leave some mess, but the, the heroin, fentanyl people, they leave much more mess. And... Yeah, I went in there thinking that my doing that would maybe they would too, but no. That's a much deeper anyway, that's I want to get back to these passions of yours. You built yeah, up this I, list. I don't have an email list on cleaning up litter. <laughs> maybe I should. That these things are for me. Every now and then I'll find a TikTok channel with like some teenage kid who like picks up litter and he's got a million followers. Well, there's a thing in Europe. There's a name for it. Where, Clogging? Yeah, where people go out jogging, but they bring a bag and then they pick up litter as part of their workout. Ah, I've, been, I've yeah. been on TV twice for this. Okay. Yeah, I read about it. It's like, I don't know. Is it a Danish thing or I don't know. Swedish, European, yeah. Swedish. Okay. Once I start, I don't jog anymore. I only plug. And so I always, and I don't know if you set up these rules of like, that's where I got the in my path because yes. I don't like to jog zigzaggy. But so if it's wet, 
probably not going to pick it up. If it's cigarette butt or smaller, too small, I'm not going to pick it up. If there's no trash can anywhere nearby, I won't pick it up. That still leaves a ton. And from a workout perspective, it has turned jogging into... Here's Imagine you were at a gym and the gym said, okay, we're going to do a running thing. And one of the things is we're going to go for a run. And the instructor is periodically going to point at you and say, okay, you got to do either bodyweight squat, bodyweight lunge, bodyweight deadlift. And that's what it is. It's just periodically stopping and doing that. Yeah, I did a five-mile just jog on the main park drive um, around Central Park today. And I still remember a couple pieces of trash I saw, but I was in a rhythm. And it just disrupts your rhythm when you're cruising along, maintaining a nice pace and all. And I didn't have any plastic poop bag or anything because the nice thing is when I'm out walking the dogs is I have a little garbage bag with me, i.e. the dog's poop bag, that I can just fill up with all the trash that I'm picking up. I didn't have that with me, whatever. And I went by and I sort of had this knot in my stomach and I was sort of thinking about it. Should I have stopped? Should I have picked it up? But it becomes a little bit of an obsession. But I figure... I guess I'm not a religious person, but I do believe in karma. And the most vivid karma in the world is every single day, there's a headline somewhere about anti-masker, anti-vaccine person dies of coronavirus or something like that. And I'm like, hey, man, karma's a bitch. So I think there's good karma. If you just picking up litter, like just makes me feel good. And I'm not doing it because, yeah, yeah, I had the same reaction you do. Like nobody notices and almost never does anyone say something. Oh, that's really good of you to do that or whatever, right? I do it sort of quietly. I'm not trying to attract any attention. I don't, but I do believe there's some good karma. It makes me feel good and there's karma in the universe. And, it, and if I go through life picking up trash, I mean, there's the literal picking up trash, but then there's the sort of metaphorical. I actually write a little bit in the book. Like, if you go through life doing little good deeds, ideally for other people on behalf of other people, but just it will come back to benefit you in so many ways. Like, even if someone doesn't care about karma, doesn't care about doing the right thing, just on a purely self-interested basis, I would argue pure self-interest, that's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. Forget if it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. It comes back to benefit you in a million ways. Yeah, that's why I keep doing it. Why I keep going to pick up litter, even though it's not making it, it, it is not yet making a dent, but it will make a dent. I was just, I just finished reading a John Wooden book of his coaching principles. And he talks a lot about how to make big things happen. You sweat the details. Yeah, it's one of the real themes I learned from one of the most powerful sentences that really changed my life was hearing Warren Buffett, I forget whether it was at a Berkshire meeting or one of his talks years ago. And he said, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. And the little habits, that the day-to-day -day habits of eating, exercise, um, making your bed in the morning, how you greet your spouse or girlfriend or children or whoever, your loved ones and your friends, those little habits day in and day out make no difference at all. Like you could, I could eat a big thing of cotton candy for breakfast every morning for a month and it probably wouldn't affect my overall health or fitness over a, a few weeks or maybe a month. 
But if you do that over the course of your life, it'll kill you for sure, right? So these little habits, they're so inconsequentially, in, inconsequential individually. They're inconsequential over relatively short periods of time, but they are the only thing that matters over a longer period of time. You sound like Aristotle. I'm sure you know the quote. What is it? What is the quote? I'm not going to say it as eloquently, but it's basically saying excellence is not. We don't do good things because we're virtuous, because we do good things. Or the way it makes more clear to me: when I was younger, I was afraid to go to the gym, and I thought only people with big muscles go there. Big muscles don't get you to the gym. Going to the gym gets you big muscles. Everyone's like, Josh, you do all this, all these habits. I don't have the discipline you do. I'm like. That's why I do them. That's where the discipline comes from. Yeah. Yeah. So developing those habits and just making them routine. And some of them are obvious about not smoking or using tobacco products and eating in a reasonably healthy way and getting regular exercise, right? That are very almost self-serving. You can see the outcome over time. Others like just picking up litter. There's no obvious benefit to that. I could pick up litter every day. How many days streak do you have going, right? Yes, yeah, since 2017. Right. And I don't, it's not for me like a daily thing necessarily, but it's certainly every time I go out and walk the dogs, which is most days, I'm picking up at least some litter, sometimes 50 or 100 pieces of litter over a, a half an hour of walking the dogs. I'm not aware. I've been doing it for years. I can't point to any good thing that's come of it. But it's a good habit. It's the right thing to do. And maybe I've got my wife into it. She's now almost as obsessive as, as I am. She'll even, she used to, when I used to pick up other dogs' poop, she would be like, oh, that is so gross. And now she does it. <laughs> she's very proud of herself for doing it. I think it's gross anymore. She still thinks it's gross, but she's still doing it. But she's doing it. I think she she probably feels a little bit of grossness but the fact that it's hard for her to do it and that she feels it's sort of gross gives her a greater feeling of pleasure at actually having done it with your daughters did you use disposable or reusable diapers disposable we went through that and, and you would know far better than i but there's a I have certainly seen the argument that by the time you factor in the washing of the reusable diapers and the use of detergents, or certainly if you're using a diaper service or something like that, the environmental impact is just as bad or whatever. So my guess is you do not buy that argument. And would be this is one I haven't gone into because yeah. I don't have any kids. So yeah. I, I, the one thing is, is there? I do recall that there was a statistic floating around that nine percent. I forget what the number was, but it was a meaningful percentage of all landfill in America was disposable diapers. And it turns out like most statistics, is absolutely bogus. It's well under 1%. Of course, if you think about all the trash in America, disposable diapers are going to be a tiny fraction of that. But there was some statistic floating around that people were believing. And it sort of reminds me, I always joke that 86% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So, Well, I've heard 86 before, so I don't think you made that one up on the spot. <laughs> so I, I'm going to switch to the environment. Because reading your pandemic emails... Almost, I'm reading all of them, unbeknownst to you, not all of them, but a lot of them of your advice on keeping safe applies really almost parallel to environmental action. So once I wrote you and said, this stuff really fits with environment. And I th you wrote back something like, not my issue, 
Well, by the way, let me be clear. You were much more provocative than that. I don't know if you remember the exact email you responded to, but I, I was writing. With the cursing? Yes. That was the second one. Oh, really? The one I remember is I was calling, I forget whether it was Aaron Rodgers or Joe Rogan, but both anti-vaxxers spreading misinformation and setting a terrible example. And I called whichever one of them a, quote, douchebag of epic proportions. And I got a lot of pushback from when you've got 7,000 readers out there, a certain percentage are going to be offended by it and say, you shouldn't, you're just alienating people, blah, blah, blah. And you sent me an email saying, well, Whitney, I think all of your traveling on airplanes and stuff, the damages it's doing to the environment, that you're a douchebag of epic proportions. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy who I don't even know? And so usually when people start cursing at me and get replying in a nasty way, I not only delete their email, I don't respond, I delete it. And usually I only read like literally the subject line or the first sentence because one of the ways I protect my brain from damages is like when I write publicly, the writing I used to do like for the Motley Fool and Street.com, there would be message boards. And the message boards to then and now are just filled with trolls spewing hatred and stuff like that. So I never read message board posts, for example. The instant I see that someone is emailing me something nasty and hateful, like literally in the first five words, if I can tell that it's that kind of email, I do not read it. I delete it. And I go to my mail system and I block that email so that none of their emails can ever get through to me. It's just a way. So when your email came in, like it was borderline. It was uh, because you had said something. I, I used your language, not just the cursing, but. You'd said it in a friendly way. You said, or you said something about maybe friendly or respectful, something like that. And I said, if you use it in that way, then I say to you in that way as well. <laughs> yes, you phrased it in a way that was not something that triggered me to block you or whatever. You invited me as part of the email. You invited me to come on the show, and you dropped a few hints that you're you've written an author, uh, you've authored some books, you you have a podcast, whatever. And then I googled you. And saw that you, okay, a credible guy, not some crackpot troll. And by the way, you were identifying yourself like often the worst are the people who are hiding behind the veil of anonymity. And they're just cowards, in my opinion. Like, I'll put my name on what I put out there, right? Hence, you invited me to come take a walk and all. And we discovered, you know, many similarities from uh, fitness to picking up litter and all. But I thought it was interesting. I have never, I have engaged in so many political, global issues and all. And look, I read the New York Times and I'm a reasonably well-read person. So to that extent, that is the extent of my knowledge about all things environmental and we recycle and blah, blah, blah. But I've never, I don't have an email list related to it. I don't feel like I have any expertise at all other than just being a reasonably well-read person. So part of the reason I responded to you and biked down here on that very, very, very cold day <laughs> and walked around and got even colder was because, one, you're an interesting person, but also it's an issue that I'm interested in learning more about and hearing perspectives. And it had never even crossed my mind that last year during the pandemic, I travel a lot in general. My parents and my sister and my nephew live in Kenya, and I've lived all over the world growing up. And I love to ski, I love to mountain climb and all, which you know, from New York often means traveling. 
So I travel the 1% of the 1% in terms of how often I travel. Last year, I was in 10 countries, plus traveled all over the US. I skied 30 days. I was mountain climbing and rock climbing 40 days and went and visited my dad for 10 days in Uzbekistan and went and climbed two of the highest peaks in Ecuador. Those were the only two new countries that I went to. But I was on the road more than half the days of the year last year. And this was all recreational travel. There was no business travel last year during the pandemic. It had never even crossed my mind that, gee, all that flying was maybe I shouldn't do all that for environmental reasons. We may have to agree to disagree on that. But I felt the same way about my flying too. And now most people would... The approach most environmentalists have is to give you a bunch of facts and numbers. This is my impression. And... What I try to do here is to talk to people on their intrinsic values, intrinsic what's inside, the hearts and minds. And if it engages people, great. If not, then giving people facts on something they don't care about is not going to be not going to do anything either. So if it's okay with you, I'll do the – did I describe this photo method to you before of walking people through? No, go ahead. All right, so I'll, I'll do it if, if you're okay with it. Okay, so you recycle. Is the biking, is that an environmental issue or is that – I wouldn't say that's the primary motivation. I certainly one thing I do relative to other professional Upper East Siders and all that is I probably take fewer taxis, Ubers, et cetera, than almost anyone. I ride the subway less because I use uh, my bike as a primary method of transportation pretty much anywhere in Manhattan, which is on an almost daily basis. I need to get to Midtown for some reason or another. And so mostly it's a very quick, it's the quickest, most efficient, and also most predictable way of if I have a meeting at 1 p.m., I know that I can leave my apartment at 12.40, be on my bike at 12.43, pulling out of my the bike room in my building, and I know that I will be pulling into the lobby of that building in Midtown at 12.55. Yeah, taxi, subway, not so predictable. Oh my gosh, sitting there in traffic just two days ago, just yesterday, it was so stressful. I had a 9 a.m. train on Amtrak down to Baltimore, for, which is where my corporate partner for my newsletter business is headquartered. So I go down there regularly. And uh, I was sitting in traffic with five minutes before the Amtrak train was oh, pulling out of the station. And, yeah, it, and if I missed it, I would have had a whole team of people who had assembled to, they were going to video. We, we taped one of our promotions. They would have just been sitting there for an hour and a half while I sat in, well, and I would, you know, the next train wasn't for 90 minutes. It was so stressful. And I remember a few, a month or two ago, as I was pulling out of my apartment building, I, I looked at Google Maps for taking a taxi down there and I saw there was a lot of traffic and realized, and here I am wearing a suit and tie for this promotion and all. I went back into my apartment building, grabbed my bike and biked down to Penn Station and locked my bike outside uh, Madison Square Garden basically for the whole day because otherwise I would have missed the train. So most importantly, it's just a great method of transportation. And secondly, I, I like getting a little bit of exercise. Although in the middle of the summer, we're on a super hot, steamy day, I have shown up in meetings and it's been embarrassing because I sweat. I'm sweating like an absolute maniac. I'm drenched through my shirt and my jacket and all. I've had a, a couple of pretty hilarious things there. But yeah, the idea of not uh, clogging the streets of Manhattan, which are already clogged enough. And also, I'm a cheapskate. So mm -hmm. I. I hate paying even no. for a subway, much less an Uber or a taxi. So I think there's one other reason. I think your daughter's is a big reason as well. Because you seem to have a 
your physical activity with your daughter seems to be really big. Well, it was when they were younger. I wouldn't say I was a great weekend, a weekday dad, but I was a good weekend dad. The deal I had with my wife was I was traveling a lot for work and during the week and very busy. But on weekends, the girls were mine. And so when they were young, uh, I have three daughters, three years apart. So when I had an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old or whatever, we live right across the street from Central Park on the Upper East Side. I would take them out. The oldest one, or the older two would be on their bikes, and the two-year-old would be in one of those jogging strollers, and I'd be on my rollerblades, and we would just go spend the day in Central Park, looping around, hitting all the playgrounds, the merry-go-round, etc. And I didn't care if my daughters were athletes in the sense that they were you know, super focused on just one sport and played in college. None of them did. But I wanted them to be athletic and to have to be fit, in part because I've read some very scary research uh, about girls when they hit their teen years. Their confidence plunges, their body image plunges. The single greatest risk for uh, teenage girls in wealthy families is eating disorders that stem from uh, a lot of these body image issues and stuff. And I read, and I've never been able to find the study, but I read years ago that girls that play varsity sports in high school are massively less likely to develop eating disorders, to get into drugs, to engage in premature damaging sexual activity at, at too young an age, etc. All the things I wanted to avoid for my daughters, uh, I felt, and there's actually research, I think, to back this up, that girls that play varsity sports in high school it's less likely to happen. So I really wanted them to just become very physically active and feel confident in their athletic abilities and play lots of sports. And in fact, all of my daughters, you know, played multiple varsity sports every season, basically, through high school. And knock on wood, they're now 25, 22, and 19. They're all very self-confident. In some cases, you could say overconfident. But I wanted that. If we're going to err on the side of having daughters who are egomaniacs or the opposite. I wanted the egomaniacs. Uh, we definitely got that. Yeah. When I read those parts, I was like, oh, that, that's the kind of dad I'd like to see. It's like not doing scary things, but pushing limits and having expanding boundaries. Yeah. So back to the environment. What It sounds like you, even if you haven't done anything that's like specifically for the environment, it does sound like it's you've done some things with that in mind. Yeah. Look, I, here's the argument I would make to you, which is, the the biggest environmental risk factor we all face, I think, is just generally global warming and uh, the impact that that could have. And the solution to that is governmental. And I would argue I could not go on another flight the rest of my life. Well, hold on. If, if, if you, I want to stick with – when you act on the – I want to stick with intrinsic here. When you act on the environment, what motivates you? What does the environment mean to you? And I don't mean what are you trying to change for the future. What in your heart is it like? Do you have any memories that of what nature is or meaningful to you? Well, that's an interesting thing because I grew up. I spent three years in Tanzania, three years in Nicaragua, lived out in California. My parents are very active outdoorsy people, so I always I visited more national parks in the United States. We used to. My parents were teachers, and we had a Volkswagen bus with a pop top, and so every summer we would drive across the country. So I've driven across the country multiple times. We've done the southern route, we've done the center of the U.S., the northern route, the Canadian route. 
I can remember going to a dozen or two national parks as a kid. And so uh, we always, uh, I remember going to Yosemite as a kid and one of the park rangers said that 70% of visitors to Yosemite never go in their visit in the park, never go further than 100 yards from their car, right? So they just pull up, go look at the scenic overlook, take a couple pictures and get back in their car, right? And we were the opposite. So I, I grew up appreciating the great outdoors, nature, the environment, whatever. So it's something I care a lot about. It's never, I've never really um, gotten in the same way that you have about going above and beyond the basics, recycling and not littering and so forth. It's never really something like when I ride my bike, it's not one of the top five reasons I ride my bike in New York is to reduce the environmental impact of taxis or whatever. So I do think my political activism, which tends to lean Democrat, and I would argue the single most important thing we can do for the environment is to have Democrats in power because Republicans basically, as best I can tell. I'm going to stop you from yes. getting into like what yes. people should do or what people shouldn't do. Yes. And for the stuff you do, what were the feelings you have in Yosemite? If you're staying 100 yards away from the car, what do you remember? Do like What do you see? Well, I was just there. It's interesting because in the past five years, I've started doing mountaineering and rock climbing. So I've climbed five or six peaks in the Alps, the major peaks, Mont Blanc, Matterhorn, Eiger, etc. Now I've gotten into climbing in the US. So I've gone and done weeks or two weeks in Yosemite, Joshua Tree, Red Rock Canyon outside Vegas, the Tetons. And I've got another trip planned in the Cascades in the state of Washington later this year. And one of the things that just you know blows my mind is just the extraordinary beauty of these places. And there's an element of me that just likes being in the outdoors and appreciating the beauty. I just happen to have an element where I like to be on the top of things. Like I see mountains and I want to be on the top of it. It's just an instinct that I have. And so the more challenging it is to get there and the fewer the people that ever get to the top of that particular peak, the more appealing it is to me. So I climbed the nose of El Capitan, which only a handful of people climb every year. You know, the, what Alex Honnold did in free solo. Now, I did it with a guide and with ropes. I wasn't free soloing it. I don't have a death wish. But there's just a feeling of awe in, around the beauty of these places. Well, tell me more about that awe and this beauty, your personal experience of it. Yeah. Or being on the top of things. Yeah. There's just an awe about the beauty. Like just I could uh, I have on my phone, I could show you the picture of like Yosemite Valley, which is just mind blowingly beautiful. And there are so many places like that, that I've had uh, the pleasure of and good fortune to see over time. And then for me, there's just an element of getting to the top of something where there's no other way to get up there than through your own effort and skill. And there's a sense, so separate from just the awe and the beauty, which you can experience without a physical challenge, right? You can just go on a nice hike through a relatively flat Yosemite Valley and experience that, right? But then there's just an element to my personality that I like to overcome big challenges and the sense of getting, spending four days sleeping three nights out on the rock of El Capitan, suspended on a, a portal ledge is what they call it, attached to a bolt in the wall, sleeping, spending the night 2,000, dangling two or 3,000 feet above the valley floor. I just floor. watched Maru 
Yes. Last week. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy Chin's movie about climbing, uh, what's it, Meru or Shark's Fin in, where is it, Nepal or something, yeah. so somewhere in the Himalayas, you know, one of that, that kind of climbing, I don't think I'll ever do just because I don't do it enough that I, I'm not sure there's any way to climb something like Meru safely. There's just an inherent level of risk. They didn't sound so safe in that movie. Yeah. The people have asked me, and my guide has actually encouraged me. He's like, Whitney, you could do Everest. We first have to go do Rainier. Then we would do Denali. But then I'd love to climb Everest with you because my guide has never done Everest. And you know, there's an element of risk, an element of misery, an element of being off the grid for one to three months associated with climbing. The beauty of a is hilarious. I'm climbing uh, the nose of El Capitan, and I'm sitting up there in my portal ledge, and the sun has gone down, but it's only 8 p.m. And I'm on my phone, and I'm watching climbing movies while I'm climbing El Cap, and I'm calling my wife. I've got perfect Wi-Fi signal responding to emails for better or for worse. But the reality is I'm running a 25 plus million dollar business. I've got a dozen employees. I've got hundreds of thousands of readers and subscribers. So part of it's just practical. I just can't go off the grid for weeks and weeks on end. So this climbing, the being on top, this awe, this beauty. I mean, I picked up your description of that awe and beauty. There was something beyond the words you were saying, if I read you right. And those feelings that you get, I invite you, and this is at your option, to think of something you can do to act on those feelings here in your, in your regular life. And I, I want to clarify something I didn't say. I'm not saying what's the most important thing you can do for the environment, what New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal or, or, well, I guess Wall Street Journal wouldn't say anything, but Greenpeace. I'm not saying what's what can you do to change things. Is what can you do to bring to manifest those values in your life with three constraints. Something you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. So it's not organizing other people to do stuff. It's you do, I mean, do that if you want, but that you do your, with your own hands and that in some non-zero way, which you can measure or not, it's up to you, that you feel that has improved the world in some way, that you've left it a little better than you found it. And um, if you're up for it, then to share how it went. Yeah. Now, you've framed it as something related to the environment. And then by the environment, trees and grass and not like other people. I understand. And it's something I think about because, look, how I allocate my time, I think very carefully about it. One of the biggest changes I've made in my life in the past few years is I allocate more time to sleep. I try and get eight hours or more, whereas I used to always set my alarm that I would never get more than seven hours sleep because I've got so much to do. And I've seen enough of the research on sleep that I actually think both my mental functioning, but my longevity and just general health and happiness will be enhanced materially over a long period of time if I can get eight hours of sleep on average, not six and a half or seven. So that would be, but how I allocate my time to uh, things like education reform, criminal justice reform, I've recently just, I'd say, I started getting involved in criminal justice reform a few years ago, and I deliberately reallocated time that I was spending on education reform fights and increasing the number of charter schools in New York City or New York State, for example. And I remember you commented before we started taping here that, Whitney, I don't get as many ed reform emails from you as well. And I said, well, if you were on my criminal justice reform email list, you'd see where that time got reallocated. And the reason for that isn't because I stopped caring about 
low-income minority kids trapped in failing schools and, and reallocating it to, in many ways, a very similar broken dysfunctional system that's screwing primarily low-income minority young adults in the criminal justice system. It was more just a very pragmatic looking at the environment and saying, where do we have a tailwind? And therefore, where can I make, where if I expend a certain amount of time and energy and money and so forth, am I likely to be able to move the needle in a material way? And for 20 years, we had a big tailwind in ed reform. And then for a variety of reasons, that turned into a big headwind, which is what we've been fighting for at least the last five years or so. Whereas criminal justice reform almost came in, and like in the early days of ed reform, there, there was, I, I think just in the past few months, it's come to a screeching halt. But there was an incredible tailwind in criminal justice reform. And if you give me the choice between paddling a canoe upriver, up a strong river, or down a strong river, and I only have a finite amount of time and energy, I'm going to go downriver, right? And get a lot more done. So the reason I, I say this is because it's not clear to me that me making uh, a commitment uh, a material commitment of time, money, energy, etc., into an envi the environmental area makes any sense given I don't have knowledge, relationships, etc., where I'm likely to be able to move the needle in wow. that area. So it's. I want to make it, I want to remind you yeah. what I did not say is I don't care about the effect on the world. See, I'm that's actually, all I care about. And, and that's what I'm. That's not all you care about because well, you do lots of things that aren't. Yeah, because I pick up litter and then I recycle and all of that. But you understand, you see, you're, I understand you're pushing for like individual action and doing the right thing. You're hearing something I'm not saying. All right, tell me. I'm asking you or inviting you to manifest your values in your life in some way. I'm picking one particular area. I, I really, if you come back to me and you say, I did it, I don't want to do it anymore. That's fine. The point is you living by your values, you manifesting your values in your way. I believe that you'll give find... Me, give me an example of something that you did or that you saw somebody else did. Bring this to life. Give me a couple examples. Well, I will if nothing comes up with you. I find that the more that the person comes up with it you, by themselves, the more that it comes from internal. Because I find that... If, I can give examples if we really exhaust this process, but almost always someone will say to me, oh, I can do, oh, I've been meaning to do that for a long time. And it mostly, I think a lot of people discount, I'm going to share a little chip on my shoulder. When someone says, here's 10 little things you can do for the environment, that little implies you don't want to do it. And there's this big message that says, it sucks, but you have to do it. And I found that People, when they find something internal, they like it. Now, what they're doing might not be the thing that they're supposed to do because someone told them, here's the things you have to do, like stop eating meat or something like that. Some people, they've been meaning to not eat meat and they might do that. But mostly people think, I have to deprive myself. Now, you talking about your experience in Yosemite, I don't hear someone talking about deprivation. Now, I'm not saying go to Yosemite, but if you had... If you did something that gave you some feelings like that, I doubt you'd feel like, oh, this sucks. I feel like I do in Yosemite. Well, I will tell you that taking one of the things I really felt good about is 
I view a piece of trash in Yosemite or on the Cotopaxi and the, the tallest active volcano in the world that I climbed in, in Ecuador in the first week of December. A piece of trash there is 10 times worse than one more little piece of trash on the street of New York, right? And I remember when I was doing hiking in Yosemite the last time I was there in August, when I was down in Ecuador in uh, December, I made it a point when I was out there hiking, mountaineering out there for long periods of time, I would stop and I would bend over and pick up trash and carry it up to the camp or something where I could dispose of it properly. So that was something that I'd never done before as part of my outdoor activities. And it really felt good. And I felt like it was making a much bigger difference in the some of the most acknowledged, beautiful places in the world where people travel thousands of miles and it's their big trip and all. How much more offensive is tr coming and seeing trash when you're hiking up to see Nevada Falls in Yosemite or something like that, right? So I don't know whether that's an example of something that I'd never done before, but that was an extension of what I was already sort of doing at home. Uh, but I generally don't pick up trash as obsessively when I'm not in my own neighborhood, right? It's more part of my routine when I'm out in my neighborhood, my section of Central Park, the paths where I'm walking my dogs every day. I'm starting to do it more on a broader basis, and I feel pretty good about it. Now, if you weren't already picking up litter here, and you felt, if you said to me, oh, I had that great feeling when I picked it up there, tragic, the situation, you'd rather presume that it wasn't there in the first place. But given that it was there, you picked it up. Now, if you then said, all right, if you weren't already picking up here and you said, I'm going to pick up litter here, that would fit the bill. Now, you're already picking up litter here. So, you can't do that one again. I mean, you could augment it in some way if maybe – but – and also, I didn't hear you say you spent money, time, or other resources picking that stuff up there and yet you felt good. So, there might be things that you could do here. And I don't know what it might be, but there might be things where you – it might not take time, resources, or any other – or money or anything – but were you, and it doesn't have to, it can be small, it can be big, it's up to you. It can take you out of your way, it doesn't have to take you out of your way. Right. Let me plant a seed with you, which is for people who are fortunate um, enough to be in the position that you are in and that I am in life, which is to have achieved some degree of success, have some following, author, podcast, whatever. There's a higher bar for whatever issue we choose to engage in. I look at how I allocate my time and the issues I choose to get involved with, etc., through the lens of making big systemic change the world change. Because I've seen that I have an ability to, I don't want to overstate my importance and impact, but I've been able to really change things. And so, I don't claim to have listened to all of your podcasts or read all of your books or whatever, but I guess I think you should be holding people like me and the people you have on your podcast who are like prominent, influential people, you should be holding their feet to the fire and saying, what are you doing that will have the impact that is proportionate to your ability to have an impact, right? Beyond just doing little things in your own personal life, right? Because for most people, the, they can just do the little things in their life because they don't have a platform. They don't, they can't write big checks. They can't email U.S. senators or, or show up at events that the, pre, the presidential candidates are at, whatever, right? 
So I don't know. That's how, that's part of the emails that I send out and the message that I send out to my followers is I'm trying to get other people to step up and to use their wealth, connections, influence, etc., on issues that are really important to me. I've inspired so many people to join the boards of charter schools and write big checks and to help grow and expand, you know, in that area with the I'm not doing those things. But what I'm doing with you right here right now is inviting you to manifest something that you care about and is meaningful to you in your life. Anyway, and if it doesn't if if you want to take time and resources from other things, be my guest, but you don't have to. What's the total time you spent picking up litter on top of the time you're already spending the, walking the dogs? Because for me, it's roughly one second per day. Yeah, it's because I'm already out there. It does drive my wife a little crazy when she's we're trying to have a conversation. And then I'm darting off into the bushes, you know, picking up trash. It disrupts our conversations for sure. But no, it's de minimis. And that's the thing. I mean, everybody should do it. Just imagine if... Hold on. I'm gonna, now I'm going to actively block you from like... There's going to be things, if, if you can't come up, if you don't want to try even to think of anything, yeah, that's fine. But if you, you don't seem to me someone who shies away from, you might shy away from things I'm not asking. I'm not asking you to do the biggest thing in the world. I'm not asking right. you to join a board. I'm not asking you to, to change everything you're doing and drop other things that you're doing. But to think of something you might be able to do to act on the values that you already have. And if you do it, share how it goes. It might be that you do something. I'm not saying, I'm also not saying, you have to change your life forever. You could try something and try it a couple times. Or try it for a week or try it for a month or try it for a day. Or you could do it. Some people have done things that were really big and did lifetime changes for this. But that's up to you. So the listeners can't see this, but he, he looks very pensive in thought. And it looks like you're really yeah. considering something. Yeah. It often takes a bit of back and forth. Usually someone says, what a... In this area, I could do something. And then usually a bit of back and forth leads to something. It's Usually someone doesn't come up right away with something. I feel like I have a little bit of a mental block here in that I'm not fully... Like, I understand you. it's important for people to come up with their own ideas and all. On the other hand, I think I'm not fully grasping. Okay, often I get inspired. In the same way, I try and inspire other people by example and say, here are the kinds of things I'm doing to stay in shape, to make a difference in ed reform, make a difference in criminal justice reform, etc. I've done this a lot. What are some areas... Do you remember the last time around here that you might have felt awe or looked at something worth achieving, kind of like climbing a mountain or something that reminded you of those feelings, something that put you in that state or something that could have put you in the state or took you from that state, something that, or was there a time when you felt something like seeing that litter on a mountain? Yeah. Given how fortunate I've been to be able to travel so extensively and see the Grand Mosque of uh, Istanbul last year, and all the climbing and traveling and being in Yosemite and so forth, there's a pretty high bar, I suppose. But just thinking just around New York, my wife and I were out on a boat and seeing the Statue of Liberty lit up at night was amazing. Um, just the North Woods in Central Park, you can disappear in there. You are not aware that you are in a big city. It's incredible. It's so beautiful and the, the stream flowing through there and all of that. And we have a house that's been in our family for four generations, about a hundred years up on, up in Lake Sunapee, New Hampshire. And so it's a reasonable driving distance. And 
you can you don't have to go to Yosemite to experience the awe of natural beauty out here. You can just drive an hour outside the city. In the early days of COVID, my wife and I and my daughters would drive up just up the Hudson River, you know, near West Point, that area. There's some beautiful ridges where I've done some races, half marathon trail running up there, but just going for hikes up there. There's amazing stuff. One of the things that people do is to do things like that. And if that's replacing something that would have been like if someone says, normally I watch TV at this time and instead I'm going to go walk in the park, turning off the TV and going walk in the park would achieve my humble criteria. So if something like that came up, that would fit the bill. Yeah. One of the things that I've uh, discovered in the great outdoors, just going for a good run or hike or whatever is I generally have a good podcast or good book in my ear. And the and generally I'm listening at two to three X speed. So I feel like I'm both experiencing the great outdoors and getting getting a good workout and increasing my fitness and all of that, but I'm also enriching my brain at the same time because there's so much amazing content out there leading, of course, with your podcast now that I've discovered it. But it's a blessing, but you have to acknowledge that there is a curse to it as well in that are you ever really present if you're always listening to something? particularly at high speed, which tends to fry your brain. But I find I'm able to get through 50 audible books a year at 2.8x speed, whereas there was a period of time for five or 10 years. I used to be the biggest reader. I would, my parents would buy me books when I was a kid, the Scholastic Book Club. I don't know if that was a thing. You're a little younger than I am, but they would come into your elementary school classroom and there was a catalog. And I could order like 20 books. My parents were the most frugal people on earth, but they never said no. I could order as many books as I wanted. And then it would be like Christmas. A box would arrive a month later with 20 books, and I would devour them. And then there was a period in my life where I read no books. And then I discovered listening to books. And then I started getting into more extreme fitness things where I was, uh, I never used to be much of a runner. I was never a mountain climber or anything like that. But that gives you, you've got, hours and hours now out, out there. And so I substituted a lot of people just listen to music. Uh, I view it as an opportunity to get through some amazing book or listen to some great podcast. So it's like I said, it's a blessing and a curse. I am now an information intake machine. Are you homing in on something that it sounds like you're putting like I'm hearing pieces? Yeah. The idea is with modern technology, combined with having trained myself to listen to things at high speed, combined with all the amazing content out there, there's the opportunity to enrich your mind and get so much more content to become a more educated, informed person like never in the past. It's out there. So there's the downside to it is that it's now almost become like so many things in my life, an obsession where there's almost like no rest time for my brain. Maybe that's why I feel like I need more sleep. So I'm not sure how many people I'd recommend this to, but for me, it's really worked. It enables me to be informed and to educate others and share what I'm learning in so many different areas. I'm sort of this center of this where I suck in information from a million different sources and process it at high speed. And then I filter it and then send it out in bits and pieces to people. I feel like I, I, I thought you were heading toward 
you're either going to go for walks specifically just to listen, or I couldn't tell if you're going to say you're going to go for walks and specifically not listen (laughs) to rest the mind in some way. No, the mind rest is maybe I substitute because I realize I feel like my mind needs more rest. So I just sleep more now. So were you going the direction of going for walks and listening? I don't go for walks generally. I go for runs or bike rides or whatever. I'm usually, if I'm not out with my wife walking the dogs, if I'm just out for a walk, I've got one ear earbud in my ear and I'm listening to something at high speed. I do worry that we have not studied what is the impact overstimulating the brain. So back to things that you could, uh, it, it sounds like you're homing in on something that you could, is there something that you're leaning toward? I'm not sure. Okay, so it sounds like maybe you're just exploring something that of what it's you like being out in the woods to listen, or uh, not out in the woods, but to hike or to run. Yeah, it's uh, Thomas Friedman wrote an interesting book. Hold on, I'm going to hold off on that and just stick with you here. That some way of bringing to your life only augmenting, no detraction, feelings of awe or feelings of climbing or conquering or reaching the top or whatever it would be. You didn't say it, but the thing about cleaning up that litter on that mountain of that pockmark on the earth and restoring it. Is there something around here where you could do something similar, however big or however small? Is there something that, have you ever gotten that feeling here of like, that just does not belong here? Or that's something I've, the... That's something I'd love to experience local or that you're not already experiencing. Yeah, I suppose um, I could take, uh, I think what you and I do, picking up a lot of litter around here, really does make a difference. Like that time, we just the two of us walked on every single square inch of path of Washington Square Park over the course of an hour and walked the entire perimeter of the park. That park was materially cleaner. And that's a park used by, you know, thousands and thousands of people go through there every day. We got rid of all that. Most of them littering instead of removing litter. Yeah. Exactly. For example, when I started volunteering at the Samaritan's Purse Hospital, I recruited a ton of friends. Like, I just put out emails. Lots of people showed up and got involved and stuff. So inviting people to go with you doesn't count. That's, by all means do it, but that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is for you to experience something yourself. We don't learn from other people's experiences. Interesting. It's so funny because I'm just hardwired to, if I find something that I'm enjoying and feel good about that's making a difference in the world in whatever area, my natural inclination is, is let's make a party out of it and a social thing and so forth. (laughs) But you're going through the same. By the way, it's super powerful. Yep. And it's something else. Okay. (laughs) It's like you're playing this cat and mouse game with me. It's yeah, like that. Every- it's like that three card Monty game on the streets. Like, okay, where's the? Where are you hiding the ball? <laughs> We're all. We all have our defenses. We all see the front page, and we all want to sleep well at night. And so we all have reasons why what I do doesn't matter. And maybe what we do doesn't matter. But improving our lives improves our lives. And all I'm talking about is improving your life. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do I have any ideas based on this conversation or whatever? For things I have to do individually. You can do it with others, but you have to have a role. If you organize others to do something that, that you also do that you weren't going to do, that would fit the bill as long as you're participating in it. Mm, interesting. Yeah, there's plenty of people who do that. 
Interesting. So if you got people to join you picking up litter that you were already doing, that doesn't count. Right. But if you picked up more litter than you would have normally. Right. Partly because that was it. Well, look, one of the things I sometimes maybe I should do just routinely, for example, every time I leave my apartment, I always stick a mask in my pocket just because the law of New York is you have to be wearing a mask just to exit, to go through the lobby. Now, the doormen aren't going to say anything to me if I forget, but you never know if I go into a store or a restaurant, whatever. What I find I'm much more likely to pick up litter if I have a little plastic bag to put it in, right? Because there's not always a trash can right there. It occurs to me, like just today when I was jogging uh, around Central Park and I saw a couple pieces of litter, one of the reasons I didn't stop and pick it up is, is as I said earlier, I didn't want to disrupt the rhythm I was in running. But another reason is I just didn't have a poop bag with me because I wasn't out on a dog walking expedition. I was out on a jogging expedition. So just it, it, obviously a little poop bag weighs absolutely nothing. Just as I'm leaving the apartment, the poop bag thing is right there. I could just grab a poop bag at the same time I grab my mask every time I leave the apartment. And that would probably make a significant difference in I would be picking up trash, not just in the sort of loop out in the East Meadow where I walk my dogs, which I, my wife and I tend to keep pretty trash free right now, but in other places in New York. Now, but that would fit the criteria. As long as one piece of trash got picked up at all, that would fit my criteria. Because basically, I would say 90 plus percent of the trash I pick up is in one particular area when I'm doing one particular activity that I do two or three times a day. I'm taking the dogs out. We have a new puppy who needs to go out a lot. But I always figure, is it sort of selfish that the only place I pick up trash is in my own neighborhood because it benefits me, right? Like, why don't I care about trash that I just saw right outside your apartment building right here? Well, yes, all right. I do. Trash bothers me more on my block than some other random block in New York, number one. But number two is I'm just more likely to be carrying a little trash bag with me in my neighborhood. So the easy solution to that is, is just always carry a little trash bag with you so that I can take advantage of other opportunities to clean up trash or dog poop that I see elsewhere. So then if I hear right, this would be, you'd be a little more extra conscious to bring a trash bag with you. Which means I would probably pick up twice as much litter every day as I do currently okay. would be the result of that. Let's make a smart goal, specific measure. So it sounds pretty specific. How long would you do it for? Well, the idea is it would just become a habit and it would be indefinite. So then how long, if you start doing this, if I have you back for a second conversation to ask how it went, how long, if I say, how did it go, would it take, how long, when should we schedule a second conversation if you're up for sharing? As my schedules, as you may have noticed, is pretty wide open. I don't know how often what your routine is, but my guess is as soon as a month or we could do a year from now, you know, it'd be sort of interesting to see, okay, I'm sort of talking about doing it. Easy thing to do. Why not give it a try? I can't tell you whether it has gained traction and become a habit. It'd be, as I noodle on it, it's like, why not? So I propose a month and a year. So both, but talk to you, say in about a month. Okay. And now let's make sure it meets your criteria. Is this going to uh, bankrupt you? Is this going to cost a lot of money? No. Is this going to take time away from other things? Are you going to not be able to do any other things? No. Is this going to slow down legislation? Is this going to stop people from voting? No. No. There's The, the thing is, there's no downside to this. Um, 
other than the very minor downside of if I'm riding, because often I'm riding my bike around the city. And the problem is it could start to drive you crazy, right? In the sense there is an infinite amount of trash in New York, right? Uh, I biked to just to get here to your place here. I live at least four miles from here. So when we finish up here, I'm going to get on my bike and bike four miles back and probably see 10,000 pieces of trash. Even if I had a little plastic baggie in my pocket, I'm not going to be stopping every three feet on a four-mile bike ride home when it's cold out. So my guess is that the habit will be more when I'm walking or if I just go out for a jog like today. If I go out for a jog in Central Park, I bring a little waist belt that holds my cell phone. And so it's very easy. It has a little pocket, in fact. Just pop a poop bag or two in there, a little plastic bag. And that way, when I'm just out for a run, that's not part of my dog walking routine. I'll just expand the existing habit that I have to a new expanded area such that I'll have the opportunity to feel a little micro. Every time I pick up a piece of trash, there's a little micro dopamine hit of feeling good. So now I'll have I'll now have a lot more of those little micro hits. No, I'm not telling you to think that, right? You're No, you're that's fine. I'm just telling you that's part of the reason I do it is in fact the main reason I do it is because it makes me feel good. Like it makes having a cleaner living in a cleaner neighborhood and knowing that I've made a little contribution to it is just a good feeling. So you're saying to me what if I said to you, you're saying exactly, you might be getting a kernel of what has emerged into my strategy of starting with intrinsic, starting with, there's time later to come of talking about what's the most important thing everyone can do and how to make the river go downstream instead of upstream. But first, I think most people's general impression of the environment is it's a burden, it's a chore, it's deprivation, it's sacrifice, it takes time away from other things, it costs money. And if it's not worth, if it's not going to change everything overnight, it's not worth doing. Maybe those are all true. But in my experience, people can bring things into their lives. And I predict that this will not stop. What you talked about the riding experience of when do I stop, when do I not stop, you will learn something that will augment. That's my prediction. I could be wrong. It might be come back and you say, Josh, I did it once. It was stupid and I, I'm not going to do this again. In which case... Good thing I didn't waste my time trying to like hold your feet to the fire about something that would only probably annoy you more. But if you do come back and you say, I discovered something about this that I didn't realize or something like that, I predict you describe to me and tell me if I misread you, that you're going to get a non-zero positive experience from this. Maybe small. I predict whatever positive result you expect, I predict it will be greater in ways that you can't really tell until you actually do it. Mm-hmm. Even taking into account what I just said. Yeah. This is something very easy, no sacrifice, no downside, other than a little bit of incremental time, but a very little bit of incremental time, far offset by feeling good intrinsically. It gets a lot harder if you were to per your first email to me, where, what, when was the last airplane flight you took? 2016. Okay to say, Whitney, you should either cut back or stop taking flights to ask me to do that as an environmental sacrifice or something like that. Now, that's, that would be a real sacrifice. Now, do you think I was any different in 2015? 
You mean how much were you traveling in 2015 before you gave it up in 2016? What was my attitude toward flying or the idea of not flying in 2015? Was it different than your attitude toward not flying now? That's a good question. I thought it was absolutely necessary. I thought to be a good citizen in the world, how could you not be? Yeah. I thought it would be, I, I thought it was going to be the worst thing I've ever done. Uh huh. And I, I didn't invite you to not fly. Also, you found something that you're describing as small and, but positive, but there's no way that I could have predicted, like, if I couldn't say to you, here's something you could do. And I couldn't have guessed that this would be the perfect thing for you. And if I go to a hundred other people on the street and say, how about you carry a bag with you every time you go out? Most of them would probably say, I don't want to do that. Right. But if I asked them what they cared about or what the environment meant to them and led them through the same process, they'd come up with something that might, to you, sound stupid, but to them might be similar. Yeah. Yeah. And taking these small incremental steps is, I remember one of the most influential books I've ever read is Robert Cialdini's book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion is the subtitle. And it talks about, they did a study to try and get... Putting political signs in, yeah. And people, 90% of people said no. But if there was some very small incremental step that they could do, email a friend, hey, I support Cory Booker for Senate. And then ask them, hey, can we put a big Cory Booker sign in your yard? The, the yes rate went from 10% to 50%. Because there was the incremental, a very small incremental step of sort of commitment, et cetera, right? So in a million years, you're not going to persuade me to cut back my traveling right now. But you've got me thinking. And if I do some little extra thing, make more of a commitment to cleaning up litter or something, that's certainly the way you persuade people to do bigger things. That may be. That's not my strategy, though. Because a lot of people make the big little distinction, but mine is extrinsic, intrinsic. That some people for this challenge come up with or this commitment come up with fairly big things. I've had people who they're like, you know, I've been meaning to go vegan forever. And they went and decided that. One person, Lorna, whom I mentioned before, she decided now I can talk about other people's things. So she decided that she would not buy any new clothes for a year. And a couple of weeks later, I was like, How are things going? She's like, I'm getting rid of clothes actually. And I don't know if I could say this on the recording, because I forget. But I think I've said it on a recording before that she was going through the class and being like, what am I not using so I can get rid of it? And then she started going through like her date book and was like, what contacts do I not need to keep in touch with anymore? And she would talk about one time she went to a, a big meeting. She's, a, she's retired now, but she was CEO of Kraft in China. And she was the major person, one of the main people behind Danone USA going B Corp. Okay. And then all of Danone. And, or, Aldo known is not yet B Corp, but they're moving that way. Well, I'm not sure because the CEO, I'm sure you know about the, what's his name? The, I'm blank on his name, but the, the CEO was recently, I don't know what the term is, ousted. Of which company? Danone Emmanuel Farber. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she worked directly with mm -hmm. him. And anyway, so she's going to some high powered executive meeting. And on the way, her bootstrap breaks. And she thinks, oh, I'll just get a new boot, new boots. And she says, oh, wait, I'm not doing that. Right. So she walks into the meeting. She's like, my boot strap broke. And I forget the details, but like they all got together and like figuring out how to fix the boot. Right. And it was like a, not like a team building exercise, but a bonding thing. It didn't hurt the relationships. It augmented the relationships. Then she got a TED talk, full TED, not TEDx. Okay. And her first thought was, what new thing, what new outfit will I buy to wear? And she said, oh, wait, I'm not getting a new outfit. So she sat with some friends. One of them said, what do you like to wear most? And that's what she wore. And 
her process of preparing for it was not about how do I look, but what do I want to say? And it was a different experience for her that she enjoyed. And she's up around 3 million views now. Right. I suppose reducing the amount of laundry, the frequency with which you're washing your clothes makes a huge environmental impact if you just are not. The purchasing. Well, there's the purchasing of clothes and the disposability almost of all these Zara and Forever 21. It's sort of H&M have created is a big environmental disaster. So some people do big, some people do small. But for me, what's important is the intrinsic versus extrinsic. If the intrinsic is there, this, I think, will activate it. Right. I'm a project-based educator, and I'm not going to lecture a class. I, I try to avoid it, and I believe I avoid it. And But if I can find – if I can get them acting on something that they care about, they're going to keep going and keep going. And if something's there, then maybe our next conversation will build on that and, and explore that. Yeah. And if it's not there, that's – One area that I think for a lot of people, a lot of people could do is I think by, certainly by observation – Someone just wears a shirt. They're not working out. They don't get it all sweaty. It's not particularly dirty, but they've worn it for the day. And they just throw it in the laundry, right? And that adds up to them doing laundry multiple times a week. And I would say partly for environmental reasons, I don't do that. Like if I haven't stunk it up and there's not a, you know, I didn't spill something on it, I just fold it up and put it back in my closet. And I'll wear the same things. The, these pants I'm wearing right here, I've worn seven days in a row. Not washed or anything. They're still fine. And so I probably do less laundry, X my athletic. When I come in and my wife's, oh my God, you smell, you know, whatever. <laughs> I got to wash that shirt. But, uh, you know, that if I weren't already doing, that would definitely be something that I would be putting pretty high on my list. That's one of my big reasons for the kettlebells and the rowing machine here. Okay. Instead, the gym is just down the block. Right. So there's a few reasons why not. One, I'm cheap. Two, if it's raining, I'm less likely to go out. Right. Also, the deal, do I shower there? Do I change here? Do I right. do... All the extra laundry, and I'm not too proud to. It's just something to be ashamed or proud of. I don't know. Right. But today is a lifting day. Right. And I lift naked. <laughs> and so you don't create any laundry at all. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to shower right afterward anyway. So you must and, not sweat nearly as much as I do. <laughs> well, not in the winter, but in the summer I do. But then I think I, the, here's something that happens when I do that. That first of all, I think this is weird. And then I think, is it weird? Look, I'm over 50 years old. A 50-year-old man can say what the fuck, right? right. I'm just in just my apartment. I'm not out in the park naked. Right. And another thing about it is, so I think role models, like the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, I thought, lockdowns. How do I handle a lockdown? And my first thought was Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was locked down for 27 years yeah. and emerged to become president of an apartheid nation or a formerly apartheid nation. We're two years in. I got a quarter century to go before I start losing it. And so the pandemic, I'd rather, I'd prefer to not to be locked down, but I got the internet. I can go out and buy food. I don't have to break rocks. I got a quarter century to go before I'm in trouble. And in his 70th birthday, here's my little joke. For his 70th birthday, something like 200 million people attended the event around the world. I haven't even gotten 1 million people to one of my birthdays. And he did that from prison. So... This is my challenge is like how I've gotten closer and closer to him. So role models, so lifting weights naked. I think of the Grecian urns. I'm like, I'm like an ancient Greek yeah. at the gymnasium. No problem. I got several millennia tradition that I'm going with. This is the sort of thing that I think when you are picking stuff up that you wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Things will happen that wouldn't have happened if you're 
not doing anything. What comes of it, that's your experience. And that's what I'm very curious about the second episode or second conversation. Sure. The fact that there's going to be some accountability that I have to come back and talk about it. But it'll be interesting. I wonder if a month from now, a year from now, we'll have thought of some other things. Yeah. There are people who come back. Everyone comes back with a unique experience. My favorite part of the podcast is hearing people's responses to what does the environment mean to you? I've been to Yosemite and I've been a hundred yards from the car. I camped out there with a friend who was, he was like a member. Uh, he went there all the time. So I had a guide and we had a really great time. I was there with my dad when we did one cross country thing. And I've certainly seen the Ansel Adams and I saw the free solo. And, but also you're talking about it. So it brought me back. The Ansel Adams, some of the Ansel Adams images that I've seen came to mind. Maru came to mind. And I love that. Ever, no person has given me this. No two people have given me the same answer twice. No one has done the same personal commitment. Everyone, this is not a burden for me to do this podcast. It's really, oh, so the listeners can't see this. As we've been doing this, it's dark now in my apartment. And I thought, should I go over and turn the light on? But I didn't want to step away and break the conversation. So we're sitting here lit by the blue light of the microphone light and my computer screen. Maybe we should, and we're coming up on two hours. Maybe we can wrap up now and then pick up next time here. Sure. So anything to close with? Anything you want to say to listeners before wrapping up? And then we'll just pick up here next time. No, this has been uh, one of the reasons I came on this. Given I have almost no background in environmental stuff, I was puzzled why you wanted me to even be on your podcast and all, but I figured we'd come have an interesting conversation. That would prompt some new thinking and uh, get me thinking outside pretty rigid ways of thinking and all. So you've accomplished that. So this has been interesting. Thank you. I'll say you're welcome because you said thank you, but I thank you for being open, allowing me to persist and guide the conversation. Although the first part in sharing, it, is your book publicly available? Is it? Yeah, it's done? called The Art of Playing Defense, and it's uh, available in paperback and hardcover on Amazon and Audible. I recorded it myself, in fact, in a studio, so you can hear me narrate my own book. And it's the book, it's my fourth book that I've published, and fifth. Uh, I have a fifth book, The Rise and Fall of Case Capital, that I talked about that I've written. So I've written five, published four, soon to be, I'll publish this year my fifth. It's the one I'm most proud of in the... I think the book is framed around avoiding calamities and I break down, instead of talking about this is a book on how to be successful in life, I invert it, which is a framework I got from Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He says invert, always invert. So instead of thinking, okay, to be happy and successful in life, instead of saying, what do I need to do? He inverts and says, what do I need to avoid? And so that's how I decided to frame the book death and illness and having your body deteriorate either suddenly or rapidly, avoid a bad marriage, addiction and abuse, et cetera, et cetera, loneliness. So it, in some ways, it's a depressing book, but I actually, I had a blast writing it. And the handful of people who've read the book have said they really enjoyed it because there are a thousand books out there on how to be successful. There just aren't, I can't think of a single book about how to avoid calamities right? Here are the calamities that can destroy your life and how to avoid them. Yeah. I'm going to add a couple other things to the very beginning of the book that you mentioned in it. One is people pay attention to the offensive players, but the defense wins games. Defense wins championships. And another one was, there's a lot of books about people who've lived through calamities. And you say, why should I listen to you? You haven't lived through them. And you're like, well, who do you want to learn from? The ones who 
got hit by them or the ones who didn't get hit by them? I'm the one who didn't get hit by them. Yeah. Look, I've been blessed with incredible good fortune from the day I was conceived, not just the day I was born. And a lot of it is just absolute good fortune and what Buffett calls winning the ovarian lottery, the family I was born into, the country I was born in, the fact that I'm a white male, etc. is all good fortune. But I do uh, think that some of the good things that have happened to me, and I've had a pretty charmed life, I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world, is because especially since 25 years ago or so when I discovered Buffett and Munger and started going out to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, etc. I've learned from these old guys something that I had sort of learned from my parents, but they had never really taught it to me. It was more by osmosis, whereas Buffett and Munger taught it about developing good habits and thinking about the calamities that can wreck your life, etc., etc. And I started to live my life that way, and it's made all the difference. And I decided to put it down on paper for the benefit of my children because I don't, I think it would be an act of negligence as a father to have discovered the, I don't know, the holy grail, the oracle from these wise old men and discovered a series of lessons that I've incorporated into my life that have made such a big difference in having a stronger marriage and being in better health and being happier and more successful, etc. If I had learned all these things and not transmitted them to my children, and just given the way I am, writing it down in the form of a book is the way I chose to do it, partly because that's just the way I am, and they can read it privately, and, and then they can incorporate it without having to acknowledge that they might have actually listened to something their father had to say, which is a barrier, of course. But it's also a great way to reach other people, too. So it's that's a book I'm just um, really proud of, and that's that I just have an emotional connection to in, in a way that all of my other books are just about investing the mortgage crisis and stuff like that. Well, I appreciate you having shared it with me. I enjoyed reading it. And I propose picking up here in a month. All right. Sounds good. Whitney Tilson, thank you very much. My pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.